Take your Bibles, please. I'd invite you to look with me at Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, and we'll look today at verses 20 through 23. Romans 14, verse 20 through 23. The word of the Lord says in Romans fourteen twenty, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Uh, You can be seated, and I would mention that the children can be dismissed to children's church. I'm always thankful for the worship team, everyone who volunteers there. I'm thankful for the work they put in. They spend time at home getting ready to lead us in those songs of worship. They come in very early and practice so that they wouldn't be a distraction to our worship. And today there was a, an additional pianist that I'm thankful for. Uh, Peggy Vincent was at the piano today. Her family's been in church here for a little while. Her husband, Craig, is the director up at Bridge Street Mission and I think doing a very faithful work up there. I'm not sure if he's here today. Part of his ministry is that he travels to other churches and and ministers there and makes sure that churches are aware about Bridge Street. And so I'm thankful that Peggy was willing to help us at piano today. There's a bit of a shortage at piano because of uh, Donna Petrie. She's recovering still, and her health is fragile, and she's on the mend, but it means that uh, we have one less pianist, but God is good. And Peggy was responsive to the opportunity to play piano, so thank you very much. The truth is that the Bible, uh, on more than one occasion, explains, like this in 1 Corinthians 10, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not everything builds up. In that one verse... You have twice the declaration that there is no wicked particle in God's creation. But then you have two applications of that. It's not always helpful for you to do everything you can do. For you. For your spiritual condition. But then there's another one. All things are lawful, but not everything builds up. You have brothers and sisters in Christ... And some of the lawful things that you could do aren't maturing them. They're not discipling them. In that reality that all things are lawful, but not everything's helpful, all things are lawful, but not everything builds them up, sometimes as Christians we have a clash between our liberty and our testimony, between our freedoms and our discipleship. What do we do in that moment? That's really what Romans 14 is dealing with. The reign of Christ in us lives above the liberty we have in grace. The kingdom of Christ is more than our preferences and choices. We've already heard 
The kingdom of Christ, what a great summary. The kingdom of Jesus Christ is righteousness, joy, and peace. The kingdom of Jesus Christ is not preferences, not the things we enjoy, which are lawful, but not helpful. The kingdom of Jesus Christ is righteousness and peace and joy. Ultimately, what is to be said about Jesus and his kingdom is a very high priority to us. What our choices or our preferences do to people is very important to us. It matters to us. So for this morning, I've titled this sermon, The Work of the Lord Without Obstacle. The Work of the Lord Without Obstacle. In that title, what's the work of the Lord? What's God doing today? What is a potential obstacle that could be put in front of God's work? So here we are in Romans 14, and the text of this is basically Christian living as it regards our stewardship. How do we steward all of this freedom we have in Christ? It's a lot of freedom. There's no condemnation. Who can lay any charge against God's elect? It's God who saved them. Who can condemn them? So we have all of this freedom. How do we steward that? In 2011, January, Rothschild, Wisconsin. You know what happened? I was here that day. I didn't move here until March of 2016, but I was in Rothschild. A man in my church that I was at at the time came to me and said, would you drive with me to Rothschild, Wisconsin? I said, okay. What's going on in Rothschild? at the Cedar Creek uh, Convention Center. Scott Walker's going to be there. And he is signing into law the Conceal Carry Law, making Wisconsin the 49th state. I'm a little ashamed of that. The 49th state to allow Conceal Carry. And so I drove with him and came over and saw the day it was signed there in Rothschild. I don't know why Rothschild signed into state law that we would be given the liberty to have concealed carry. We would say, that's, that's our right. But we would all say, I hope everyone who has that right is careful with it. Right? We have liberty in Christ. And Romans 14 is saying, I hope everyone who has it is careful with it. So look back with me at Romans chapter 6. The liberty we have is only to be stewarded by those who are free from sin. Free from sin's bondage. Free from sin's manipulation and slavery. Look at Romans chapter 6 and verse 17. Anytime we're going to talk about stewarding something faithfully, it must be in this context. Romans 6, verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms 
because of your natural limitation. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, now, being free from sin, present your members, orient your priorities as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So what I'm going to say from Romans 14 has to be in that context. We're not slaves to sin, but rather slaves to righteousness. Therefore, yield your priorities, yield your members as slaves to righteousness. Let me say two things in this time together. In our freedom that we have in the gospel, we know that God's work is great treasure. Being set free from a kingdom of condemnation and wrath, we now know that the kingdom of God, the work of God is great treasure. And then secondly, as we walk through these two verses, I want us to understand that stewarding our liberty has to be done without sinning. Because we are free, we know God's work is great treasure. And because we are free, we would prioritize our liberties in a way that they do not become sinning. Let's look at the first point here. In verse 20, we read this. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Do not, for the smaller priority of what you can eat or drink, destroy the work of God. The value between liberty that you have and what the apostle calls the work of God. What is the work of God? What is God doing? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says, We, the Christian church, are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for doing good work. And John chapter 6, Jesus himself says, This is the work of God, that you would believe in him who he has sent. Do not, for the sake of food and drink, destroy the work of God. What is the work of God? It is his people. It is those people who will believe in Jesus Christ. So as the apostle puts emphasis where greatest priority should be on people, we have to understand that if we steward our choices in a way that discourages other people, that we are in danger of pulling down pulling down. I've already shared for you with you from Timothy where Paul says, "Be careful that you hold your confession of faith well, because some who don't hold it well have made shipwreck of their faith." I shared that with you last week. Let me today invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, the author of Hebrews is giving a sort of worship instruction. A lot of there was a lot of ritual in worship. And Christianity might have seemed like there was too much freedom, too much, too much license. Like, is there, is, there, is there something we can be confident that it's okay to enter into the holy place of God's presence if we are Christians and not observing all of the particulars of Old Testament worship? And Jesus Christ settles that question of appropriate worship. So in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, 
Do not, for the sake of secondary things, pull down the work of God, which we've already seen as the people that God is building up. And in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, we read this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Christ, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is his flesh. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God. What that means is since Christ is all in all, don't fret about secondary things. Christ is the answer to the hard question. Therefore, let us, look at verse 22, the first four words, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast. Verse 24, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Look down to verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Since we have confidence, let's live in gospel context because the person who doubts if Christ is sufficient to truly make them acceptable to God has actually trampled underfoot the blood of the covenant, the blood of Jesus Christ. What happens... When we prioritize our preferences in a way that creates doubt in a brother or sister. Doubt that a person can choose that and still be acceptable with God. It is, it is temptation to doubt if the blood of Christ is sufficient to have fellowship with God. Do not tear down the work of God by the things we have the right to choose to do. There are several things that are in the category of Christian liberty. But the priority is the work of God. Their confidence. Drawing near, holding fast. So let's consider them how to build them up to love and good works. The work of the Lord begins at redemption. But the work of God, us being his workmanship, isn't completed at redemption. It begins with redemption. So we're talking about the things we choose to do that would cause a fellow Christian to lose confidence that they have righteousness, peace, and joy by the blood of Christ. Can you imagine? You choose to engage in some liberty. Whatever it is. And a fellow brother or sister sees that. Maybe they join you in it but feel guilty about it. And what happens in turn is that they lose confidence that they in fact are righteous before God by Christ. That they're at peace then with him and they lose that joy 
that the Spirit of God has testified to them. And for what? Really, for what? I mean, what, what is that preference that we're talking about? It's a myriad of things, isn't it? It can be something as small as what you play on the radio. About a month ago, I mentioned how the vaccine conversation can weigh into all of that. I've picked on things like playing cards, alcohol, going to the movie theater, celebrating Halloween. And all of those things, we have to have a joint confession that they pale in comparison. They're just our preferences. We're talking here about the work of God, which is having a body of brothers and sisters who confess without wavering, I'm righteous in Christ, therefore I have peace with God, and there is nothing that can tear down the joy of that reality. Do not, for the sake of other things, here he says, like eating and drinking, do not tear down the work of God. What a tragedy if our liberty became something that we consumed so selfishly that it would steal another person's sense of righteousness, peace, and joy. That is such a catastrophic loss for any Christian. And literally, what Paul says, it makes shipwreck of their faith. He goes on, and he says, everything is clean. We already covered that statement. Remember, look up to verse 14. Everything is clean. Now, if you choose to use a New International Version, an NIV, it actually takes a little bit more liberty and inserts the word that meat and drink are clean. In fact, Paul intentionally uses a very plural term, everything. He's not just referring to the things we've talked about in this context. He literally, plural, everything is clean. If you use an ESV or in New American today, you'll see it says everything, or in the New American, all things. All things are clean, meaning free from that which soils or corrupts it. It's free from. Let me illustrate. All right, tune in, because in about 10 seconds, I'm going to say a couple words that might be startling, and I want you to have context. Everything is clean. As I think about a way to illustrate this that is helpful for us, I would use the matter of sex, sexual intimacy. Is sexual intimacy free from corruption? Uh, right? Uh, give me some context. Okay, let's give some context. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, the first command... God said to his image bearers was have sex. He is the giver of good gifts. After all, the first command given to mankind. So is it evil? Hmm. Listen closely. I want to read from 1 Corinthians 7. Now concerning the matter that you wrote, so that the church is like, hey, uh, we've taken this standard, that it is good for a man not to have sexual relationships with a woman. Paul says, um, what? By the way, let me just give some clarification. What they had done is they had applied asceticism. That was, they had said, well, we don't want to associate with anything that could become evil, so we'll step away from anything that might lead to something bad. It's asceticism. 
I'm going to free myself from those things that are available to me, that are evil to me, so that I don't wind up doing something that might become evil, asceticism. So the church writes to Paul and says, hey, here's our standard at church. We've just said it's not good for a man to have sexual relationships with a woman. And then Paul says, uh, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife doesn't have authority over her body, and the husband doesn't either. Or the husband does. Likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his body, the wife does. There's this mutual giving of ourselves to each other. And he says this, do not despise one another, except perhaps by agreement for a small time, that you could devote yourself to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So the question is, everything is clean. Does that relate to sex? Yes, but can it be used for evil? Definitely. But because it can be used for evil does not mean we have to assume that it is evil in every context. In the confines of marriage, sex is God's plan. Procreation comes about through that reproduction. He goes on and says, everything is clean. However, it is wrong. Now he goes back to singular. It is wrong for anyone to make another stumble. Well, what's wrong? Okay, what's wrong? Well, it's wrong for the person who says, I have this liberty in Christ. I'm going to go ahead and do it. And you're standing next to a young brother who says, I don't think we have the right to do that. Why don't you get away from me? I'm exercising my liberties. That's wrong. It might not just be referring to the stronger conscience that says, yeah, we have this freedom. It might also be referring to the weaker conscience that sees you doing something and says, oh, okay, I'm going to go ahead and jump in on that too. And then feels overwhelming remorse, guilt, because they violated their own conscience. I think, in fact, when, when Paul says, it would be wrong for you to be the cause of God's work getting tripped up. I think he's referring to both the wrong that the strong can do and the wrong that the weak might do. It is wrong. It is wrong to be selfish. It is wrong to doubt the sufficiency of our justification in Christ alone. It is wrong. I think the question is, what do you really think about the kingdom of Jesus Christ? What do you really think about the gospel? Do not, for the sake of the trivial, the trite, the petty, the inconsequential, the fleeting, do not, for the sake of the small, pull down the great. But do we treasure the great, the work of God, the kingdom, the good news? Do we treasure that? more than we treasure whatever it is you have the right to do. Listen to Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, 
He treasured it so highly that he covered it up. And with joy, he goes into town and sells everything he has because nothing is as important. He forfeits everything else so that he can have what's needed to come back and buy that field the treasure was found in. That's good word picture. You can see it, right? You can see this little plot of land being to this man more valuable than anything else he possesses. So he goes into town, forfeits everything else he possesses because this thing is greater. I wonder if we would say the work of God, the gospel, another Christian's righteousness, peace, and joy, the kingdom of Jesus to us feels like a greater priority than whatever else we possess in Christian liberty. Because we have been set free from sin, we know that God's work is the greater good. If we were still in the bondage of sin, if our eyes were still in dark, we wouldn't know that the treasure in the field was worth more than anything else. But because we've been set free from sin, we know that what God is doing, his kingdom, the good news, is a greater treasure than anything else. Number two, when we have been set free from sin, we have liberty, but we steward it sinlessly. Look at verse 21. When we have been set free from sin, we have liberty, but use it sinlessly. Verse 21 says this. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Paul's pointing our attention back to verse 17. The Christian is not marked by the taboos they avoid. But again, righteousness, peace, and joy. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Is that the command of God? Don't eat meat, don't drink wine. Problem solved. That is not. When he talks about eating meat and drinking wine, what is he referring to? Our liberty. He is referring clearly to liberty. He sets this issue of meat and wine against the stewardship and discipleship of our brother. God's work free from stumbling. Okay, let me spend about five minutes here talking about the liberty of meat eating and wine. I am going to advocate for wine being in the category of liberty for the Christian. The reason is not to convince you that it's your liberty, but to illustrate in the close how we steward that liberty sinlessly. Okay? So, I am fully convinced that both eating meat, even that meat that had once been offered to idols, or drinking wine is absolutely a liberty the Christian can participate in. Absolutely convinced. I, um, I, I would struggle with an argument against that. The most uninformed arguments, maybe you've heard these, 
Um, if you've been in Christianity a long time, especially certain persuasions of Christianity, you've probably heard this argument. And that is the claim that the wine, the oinos, in the Bible had no or almost no alcoholic content. Therefore, you could not become intoxicated by the wine in the Bible. <laughs> Do we want to take turns poking fun at that argument? The immediate reaction, listen, let's, let's just talk reality here. The immediate reaction to crushing grapes in the absence of a preservative or refrigerant is fermentation of the sugars in the grapes. Immediately. Therefore, Luke chapter 5. Uh, no one puts new wine in old wineskins, right? So you've got the wine that already fermented in a wineskin, pushed it to its limits. And then you put new wine in, that wine which is going to instantaneously begin to ferment, and the gases are going to cause that wineskin to expand, but it already did expand, so it can't expand anymore. No one puts new wine in old wineskins. If he does, the new wine bursts the skins. Why? Because it instantly ferments. To claim that this wine in the Bible is not intoxicating... Or new wine, maybe. Maybe new, new wine. Grape juice. The Welch family from the first century. Acts chapter 2, verse 13. Peter's preaching. They're, they're hearing this message in unusual dialect. Like, what? These guys are from this people, and we're hearing them in our language. What, what's going on? And so some people stand up there like, they mock them, saying, these guys are filled with new wine. That's the problem. So the accusation is, they've got too much Bible wine in them. That's why the babbling. Hmm. Here's what we do know. And I, I guess pastorally I have to say this to guard you against temptation. We do know, Ephesians 5.18, that drunkenness is sin. The drunkenness is sin. It's not only sin, it's the counterfeit to being filled with the Spirit. It is taking Spirit leading out of the equation and putting intoxication in the equation and saying, okay, intoxication, where do you want us to go today? And replacing the Spirit of God with it. It's sin. Drunkenness. It's sin, it's crime. We know that the legal limit for intoxication, what's called drunkenness, too drunk to drive, is 0.08. This is when it becomes illegal to operate a motor vehicle. I would say, verse 21 lists meat and wine as liberties that can be stewarded by any Christian. However, we know that the excess of using that liberty is a sin. Excessive use of liberty is a sin. But I would point out this Latin expression. I think, I think this is so helpful for us. Abuses usum non tolet. Meaning, abuse does not take away proper use. Abuse does not take away proper use. And I think that's important because that tends to be the summation of the argument. Well, it could become bad. 
Maybe that's the asceticism argument that the church in Corinth made when they wrote to Paul. And they're like, okay, because sometimes sex can be sin, we've just got this standard in church now where we tell everyone no more sex. The abuse does not take away proper use. Now, again, I feel this pastoral responsibility. I want to point out that when it comes to stewardship of liberty, there definitely is danger. There definitely is danger. Do not, for the sake of meat and wine, tear down the work of God. That, that points us to risk. Let me just point out two practical. What you exercise as liberty can be a justification for your disciple to abuse. Right? It can be. When I wrote that, I thought about Abraham and Sarah. And Isaac. You know, Abraham is in danger of being killed so his beautiful wife would be taken away. And so he says, oh, uh, she's my sister. Is that true? Uh, yeah. Kind of. He left out the little part that she's my wife. Um, his son later tried that same thing. Isaac said the same thing. Rebecca, she's my sister. Is that true? No. There's one small example of how maybe you taking a liberty to say something that's a half-truth might be used by your disciple to be a justification to do something that's not true at all. Is consuming alcohol a liberty? I'm going to tell you with confidence, yes, Christian, it is. But could it also be used in your moderation to justify excess in your disciple? It could, so therefore steward it carefully. Second, there's another very common response to the fact that we have certain liberties, and that is to treat things as absolutely taboo, put up giant fences around them, never talk about it, you know, turn the channel when an when a, when a advertisement comes up about alcohol, just completely block it out of everyone's mind so that they won't know about it and therefore won't be in danger of participating in it. <laughs> I would just tell you that never works. Colossians chapter 2 verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elementary spirits of the world, then why do you live in the world and submit to regulations? Like, why if you confess that the gospel is a heart work that functions from the heart out through the hands, why if you say that's the way the gospel works, then why do you adopt so many regulations? You say things like, oh, don't, don't handle it, don't taste it, don't touch it. Because, because drunkenness is bad, don't touch it. Why, if we believe that the Spirit of God has changed us from the inside out, do we think that we're powerless to abstain from sin? This, he says in verse 22, is according to human precepts and teaching. In other words, telling a person not to touch that because drinking too much of it will lead to alcohol, that makes perfect human sense. There's nothing extraordinary at all about that. I 
I want to read this to you. This is the written testimony of one pastor who was talking to his church about the way we handle liberty. And there certainly could be this temptation to tell Christians, you have them, but just don't use them. We'll all be safer if you just don't use any of your liberties. Okay? I know you have them, but come on. Don't tear down the work of the kingdom. Let's just not have any. One pastor addresses his congregation when considering a part of their church covenant that required their church to practice absolute abstinence from alcohol. You could not drink anything alcoholic. And he said this to his church. I see 10 million more people in hell because of legalism than alcoholism. Satan is sly. He disguises himself as an angel of light. He keeps the deadliest disease the most sanitary. That is true. He clothes his captains in religious clothes. Don't you see his plot uncovered, the pastor says. Legalism is more dangerous disease than alcoholism. But it doesn't look like it. In alcoholism, men fail. In legalism, they seem to succeed. In alcoholism... Men depend on the bottle. In legalism, they are self-sufficient, depending on nothing. Alcoholism destroys moral resolve. Legalism strengthens resolve. Alcoholism isn't welcome in the church. Legalism loves to hear their morality extolled in the church. Therefore, what we need in the church is not front-end regulation to keep ourselves pure. We need to preach and pray and believe that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, neither teetotalism nor social drinking, neither legalism nor alcoholism is of any avail with God, but only a new creation, a new heart. Galatians six fifteen. Why would I make this point? I mean, did we really need the last 10 minutes to talk about the liberty of wine? Yes, as it relates to Romans 14. Christian, you have absolute liberty. I, I'm convinced. I would, I would welcome conversation with you, and I would be gracious and be patient as I heard from you. But it's hard for me to see a scenario where you change my mind. I am convinced that wine fits in the category of Christian liberty. Why talk about it today? Do not, for the sake of wine, tear down the work of God. Because the reality is, I think, I'm persuaded to say that there are probably a handful of people in the room who would come to me and say, ah, this is what I would say to that claim that wine fits in. I think I would have people come to me and say that. The very fact that I think I would have some people come to me and say that is, is evidence that I could tear down the work of God by... Consuming of that liberty in front of other people. What do I do then? I do not tear down the work of God, right? I prioritize the righteousness, the sense of righteousness, peace, and joy. I prioritize that over a freedom. Is long term solution? I think we've talked about this quite a bit. 
do I have a long-term solution to just say, okay, every sensitive conscience dictates behavior? No, I, I don't. However, point that there are things that are of greater weight and greater priority than our liberty. All of our liberty and all of our choices have to be filtered through the screen of the work of Christ's kingdom. Look up to verse 9. People over preferences. The work of the Lord is an organic work. It's a work of people. People over preferences. The kingdom of God must be our priority. We... His people are his workmanship. Our confession, our absolute conviction that under the blood of Christ we have righteousness, therefore peace. And the product of that confession is joy in the Holy Spirit. Our confession, his workmanship, that we believe that Jesus Christ is my hope and my righteousness. I would say, I think we should be able to walk away from this text with a complete confidence that meat and wine are not sin, not even taboos, but that right here they serve us as an example of what might be an obstacle in the work of the Lord. The long-term application. I think I've made this point clear as we've been going through chapter 14. The long-term application is not allowing people to wallow in hyperactive conscience. The long-term providence of God is still discipleship. Building up. Everything is lawful, but not everything builds up. We're about building up. You see, the church could be guilty of that asceticism that we read about earlier. Turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. When I think about all this behavior that we have with each other, I want to finish by just saying, think about Jesus. Think about Christ. We are free from sin because of Christ. We have liberty because of Christ. We are transformed for and because of Christ. Like Christ, we have liberty. But like Christ, we don't use our liberty to be served, but to serve. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind. All right? Let's have this mind in us. Having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not on his own interests. You could insert the word your liberties. Don't pursue your liberties, but also think about the liberties 
that other people count as liberties. And have the mind, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. Because you've been free from sin, you now have a Christ perspective. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. We have liberty in Christ. My advice is that you use your liberties as Christ. Let's pray. Father, your work is great work. Your kingdom is great without end. We pray for its ultimate consummation. We pray your kingdom come where your absolute, perfect, good, righteous will is forever. And so now, while we labor, while we grow in our confession of righteousness and peace and joy, give us the mind of Christ that we wouldn't be selfish. Guard us from being selfish and simply leaving our brothers and sisters in an overactive conscience. But cause us to do those things that build up. Which isn't just what we abstain from, it's what we commit to. So make us to commit to preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. That our righteousness is in him alone. Not in works that we do. Not in our asceticism. Not in the labor of our hands. But in Christ alone. So in that confession, make us to walk with each other in humility, in patience, in love. And guard your work and the fellowship of our family as you, I believe, God, you've brought us together with all of our diversities to grow up in Christ-likeness together. And so we pray to you and for the sake of your great glory as a church displaying testimony of our greatest priority, our greatest treasure. In Jesus' name, amen.